Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Tuesday, November the 3rd. Coming up, a trustee for the Toronto Catholic District School Board will explain why he wants a report on another trustee's homophobic comments made public. And speaking of the public, a recent survey says... We have an appetite for hard and easily digestible evidence when it comes to government restrictions during the pandemic. John Wright will give us some specifics on that. But seeing as it's Election Day in the United States, we reached out to Omar Wazo, who is an assistant professor of politics at Princeton, for perspective on how protests have played into past elections. Well, what we've seen in the 60s and in other periods in American history and also in other countries is that protests can work in multiple ways. So one is that they can mobilize people who are kind of ideologically aligned with those protests. And so you can kind of energize a base, um, but they also can mobilize an opposition who might react either negatively to the message or in some cases to the tactics. And so what we saw in the 60s was that um, the civil rights movement was very effective at uh, kind of building a large winning coalition on behalf of, of you know, racial equality. But in the later period of the 1960s, when more of the protests included protester-initiated violence, um, then issues of law and order became more salient in American politics. And in some cases, the uh, group that is going directly against, uh, you know, the counter movement is the government. Like in the Chicago 7, we found out that it was cops that actually started that riot. That's right. There, there are a lot of cases uh, where the state violence is really at the core of what is escalating a protest. And we've also seen that recently where uh, in the U.S. there's been um, there's one uh, Republican lawyer who is collecting uh, clips from people at protests of uh, violence by police officers that uh, was by you know all accounts not uh, you know unjustified use of force. And that has been sort of part of the story of the last um, uh, you know, few months of protests as well. And of course, there is protester-initiated violence too, but that means these are complicated events and how they get represented in the media can mm-hmm. often be quite selective. Yeah, and, and that's been one of the criticism of how media is showing what's going on with all of the uh, protests that are mainly peaceful in the states. When the protesters get involved in violence and trashing storefronts and things like that, um, it doesn't help the cause at all. And what can that do to, you know, the, what, what effect can that have when it comes to elections? It's a really important point. So, so I mean, the first thing in defense of the media is, right, the media doesn't cover planes that land, they cover plane crashes. And so when there's violence, they tend to devote uh, a lot of attention to it. But that means that, as you note, more than 90, by one estimate, 93% of the protests in the U.S. were peaceful, but, but there's been a lot more attention to the violence. And what that can matter, what, how that can play out politically, what I found in the 1960s is that when protests escalated to violence, that tended to grow the coalition in opposition to people asking, for rights. And so the Law and Order Coalition carried the day. In this election, uh, you know, what's interesting is that almost nobody <laughs> doesn't have an opinion on Donald Trump. Um, and so by one uh, analysis, 85% of Americans had made up their mind in 2018, whether they were pro-Trump or, uh, you know, anti-Trump. Um, and so there's just protests are having an effect in terms of, I think, mobilizing people to go to the polls, but they're not having as much of a persuasion effect of causing people to change their minds. You said 80 percent made up their mind in, did you say uh, 2018? Yeah. OK, so if 80 percent made up their mind in 2018, that's pre-pandemic. We could actually that number could be somewhat um, 
well, I guess changeable now because with the mishandling of the pandemic in the states and, uh, you know, how out of control things are in some states, we may have seen some people that were pro-Trump back then uh, decide that they're not so pro-Trump this election. That's that's right. And and so I, I don't mean to suggest that there aren't persuadable people. You're exactly right. There are some people who are updating on the basis of the pandemic. But one of the most striking things of this election season is that Biden has held a about a five to 10 point lead almost uh, from the pre-pandemic period through now. And it's been remarkably stable. So we've had a pandemic, economic dislocation, massive protests, and and Biden's overall approval has remained relatively flat. There is a spike that comes following the protests after George Floyd is killed by the Minneapolis police. And so there does seem to be some evidence of uh, of, of, of a mobilization effect. And there also is clearly a lot of anger, um, uh, particularly, I mean, one of the surprising details is older Americans are supporting Biden at a higher rate than Trump. And that, that, that's not been the case in the past. So, so I think the pandemic is having an effect, but, but it's really, it's only moving a few percentage points, I think, overall, even though it's, it's this, this, you know, sort of epic event everybody's almost everybody's made up their mind about Trump. And so there's just not that many people who are still persuadable. Are you concerned? I mean, what's trending on, on social media today is hashtag uh, civil war when it comes to the states and, and that this election could take a while to figure out who actually wins. It's probably not going to be called tonight. But uh, there's increasingly aggressive behavior when it comes to Trump supporters boxing in a Biden bus that we've seen in Texas recently and driving through a, a crowd of Black Lives Matters protesters. Is that increasingly aggressive behavior that's being caught on tape and shared on social media and being talked about in the media? Is that something that will garner more sympathy for uh, the Biden camp and, and lead to more votes going towards Biden of those? And there's not many, but the undecided today. Yeah, I mean, I think so there are two really important questions you're asking there. One is sort of how much will there be kind of ongoing political violence in the United States? And I think one of the uh, so on the one hand, we are an extremely polarized society where there's a deep sense of, um, you know, the other side is is uh, making these illegitimate claims and, and has making um, and is making illegitimate grabs for power. And that's that's a, often in other countries, a, a precondition for violence. The 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 one advantage uh, the United States has is in being such a strong government with such a strong commitment to uh, kind of broadly rule of law, it suggests that there won't be anything that escalates to any kind of you know, high, you know, larger insurgency or civil war. The, the, the military and the police are likely to intervene pretty forcefully should anything mm-hmm. escalate uh, too, too significantly. Um, but that doesn't mean there won't be low-grade violence like we saw in this uh, case where you know, a dozen men were uh, planning to um, kidnap um, the the governor of Michigan, um, and and more generally, I think violence. Uh, you know what I find, and, and evidence from other scholars finds, is that violence is, can help generate media attention and can, um, in some cases, be effective. But on average, particularly in, in an election context, it tends to alienate uh, potential allies, and so it, it it can work against you. Will we see protests after this result? Do you think? You know, I think it'll depend a lot on whether it's a quick or a drawn-out 
uh, election. And I think, I mean, you know, where the, the counting is, is drawn out. And I think it'll also depend on how much people perceive the process to be fair. So, for example, if, you know, Florida gets called tonight for Biden and, you know, that's the, the whole shebang, then um, I think it is unlikely to be um, any kind of significant unrest. If it drags out and if there's also, you know, contested counts uh, where people feel like no, you know, legitimate votes are not being counted, then I suspect there will be protests and um, and there will be, I think, like in the past few months, some low-grade violence, but probably nothing, um, not, not, nothing that we should worry about long-term beyond the larger challenge of the United States being so polarized. How, um, how do you think Trump's going to react to uh, Biden, a possible Biden win, if that's the way it's going to go? And um, why do you think there's a wall being put up around the White House? Yeah, those are both really, uh, you know, sort of hard questions in the sense that even the election that Trump won, he described as rigged. Um, and so he's just not somebody who um, it, 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 it has a sense of, you know, kind of commitment to process and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, and tradition. Um, so I think it, it's a safe bet that this will, he will violate all kinds of norms around the typical kind of concession process were Biden to win around, the um, you know, normal uh, routines around a peaceful transfer of power. But the good news is that he can't on his own marshal the military or marshal the police to um, to to you know somehow change the the rules um, and so as assuming these other institutions remain committed to norms and tradition um, he can tweet about it and he can make a lot of noise about it and he can mobilize his base um, but 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 fundamentally if he loses the election um, I, I, I don't think he'll He'll be able to do anything more than kind of poison the well rhetorically, um, which matters, but is not uh, as significant as, you know, sort of engaging in some kind of extra legal process. Yeah, but we've seen here, you know, watching from up north, uh, institutions bend to things that other presidents wouldn't do uh, because they're ethically wrong. Uh, in the states. Yep. So yep. it's possible that institutions might follow him. Like if the GOP is not pleased about the fact that the Democrats are in again, how could they hold things up? Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right that there have been both norms that have, you know, long held norms that have been violated and even even ethical laws that have been violated uh, around using the state as uh, a tool for campaigning where that was normally a very clear boundary. Um, that the, the the campaign is separate from governing, um, and um, but the what we're seeing, I think, which is encouraging, is a number of prominent Republicans uh, taking the side of process and rule of law, and that this is a legitimate election. So everyone from um, you know the governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Ridge, saying he's endorsing Biden to. Uh, prominent Republican election lawyers saying, you know, election voter fraud is, is uh, as one lawyer called it, the, the Loch Ness monster of the Republican Party. It's a, a mythical beast. Um, so I think you're seeing some important influential Republican elites sort of uh, you know, act as a counterweight to Trump. Um, 
and um, and ultimately, you're, you're again, you're right that there are these norms have been violated, but it, it, it's not anything to the point where um, we've, I think there's evidence that the military would would participate in some kind of coup-like process. Um, and so I think it's it's so far the military, with with a few exceptions, has really tried to remain as uh, neutral as possible. Um, and I think that's that's and other organizations like the intelligence services and um, the FBI um, have had really conflictual relationships with Trump. So I, I, I don't see reason to think they would throw their lot in with him if he loses the election. Okay, Uh, let me ask you a final question here, and that is the role of the media. We're in a 24-hour news cycle. People always want to be the first to the breaking news. How careful do news media outlets have to be when calling an election, if it it indeed someone goes to call it tonight? How how careful do you think they'll be? I I think everybody knows that um, there there this is this is incredibly fraught, and they also are still licking wounds from the election twenty years ago in two thousand when uh, they called it too soon in Florida and then had to go back and um, so so I suspect um, short of a landslide the media is going to be exceedingly cautious, but it's also important to note that. Um, in the simulations that this uh, prediction site 538 does, they estimate that you know the, the most likely response is a most likely outcome is a Biden landslide, and um, and so while you know Trump still could win, they estimate is about a one in ten chance of winning, and that that you know that could happen. Um, it also seems likely that 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 Biden could really have a, 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 you know win in a landslide, and if that happens. Then I think the, you, you know you're, the, the tension you're speaking to is going to be really uh, amped up because the media will have all of this evidence that Biden has won and not want to be premature. Um, but I think they're going to be responsible. I think you know there's just been so much evidence that this is going to be super politicized, and so they're not going to want to go out too early, but they're also not going to want to hold it back if the evidence is overwhelming. So what you're saying is that Pennsylvania cookie poll really. Uh, doesn't hold a lot of water. The six to one Trump-themed cookies outselling Biden-themed cookies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I don't. I don't think the cookie poll is gonna is gonna is gonna decide things. But you know, I mean, the thing to look for are a couple of big states, right? So if Florida, if Florida gets called, that's going you know for Biden. That's that's mm-hmm. going to be kind of the whole game. Um, there's some other states like Texas. Uh, that you know are, are are likely to go Republican, but if something like that went for Biden again, that that would be you know that would be it. Um, and then there's a, there's just like a couple of other scenarios where it would just be very likely if um, and, and and the one of the wild card here is because of the pandemic and because there's been so much mail-in voting, um, some of the states are just going to take longer to be able to count you know add count all the votes in part because they also aren't that experienced. So some states have a lot of experience with mail-in voting and will be able to do it very quickly. Some of the northern uh, Midwestern states are newer to mail-in voting. They're going to be a little slower. And so, so, but if, you know, if Wisconsin and um, Minnesota uh, come out and find, you know, quickly for uh, Biden or Trump, that, that's also going to be a strong signal. And so, so there are a few key states that are going to be strong signals if, they, if, if they're decisive tonight. Um, and in some of those states, like Wisconsin, that 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 Trump uh, won, you know, by a hair in 2016, 
the estimates I've seen put Biden up six, seven points. And so it, it, it's not out of the question that that could be decided tonight. And and so I think I think a very realistic scenario is that we have uh, a clear winner, you know, by midday tomorrow. And and as mm. much as Trump wants to stir the pot or claim it's rigged, um, you know, everyone else will move on. Well, Omar, the world is watching, that's for sure. Last uh, election time we were watching because we thought we were going to see the first female president of the United States. Trump proved us wrong. And today the world's watching to see if uh, it'll be Trump for another four more years or if we're going to get something new with Joe Biden. And I'm sure that you're on pins and needles. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us and, um, you know, sharing some insight. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity. Well, the province is planning on releasing uh, some new information for their dashboard, the numbers and how they come up with the numbers of uh, where we're at and graphs and things like that on the on the web page. So we can kind of uh, understand why they're making the moves they're making. And we're also hearing that with, you know, uh, Peel in Toronto nearing that 28-day modified restriction being lifted, which is on Friday. Well, actually, the premier could keep the, uh, you know, carry on with the restrictions, but that's the deadline, is on Friday that they had a cabinet meeting yesterday and the province is set to unveil a new tiered system for COVID-19 lockdowns. The goal is basically to give municipalities and public health units very clear criteria uh, for when to impose lockdowns and closures. And that brings me to this poll, which piggybacks on that quite nicely. The poll is by the folks at Maru Blue, and it says that unhealthy skepticism, almost half, 46% of Canadians don't believe real medical evidence is being used to shut down areas of their provincial economy. They think it's more about political reasons. Here to talk about the poll is John Wright, Executive Vice President at Morrow Blue Public Public Opinion. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Kelly. Great to be here. So uh, this poll is so well-timed because today we hear that the province will unveil a new tiered system for uh, restrictions and lockdowns when it comes to the pandemic. Um, how much of this is based on public opinion, do you think, in the fact that we're seeing that uh, people don't have confidence in why these decisions are being made? Well, I think the public opinion is almost identical in Ontario as it is in the rest of the country. So you've got about, you've got three in 10 who basically say that the government's making best guesses as opposed to medical evidence. And in fact, uh, 19% saying that it's it's based on political considerations. I'm not sure that public opinion plays the major role in this because businesses themselves and municipalities themselves need stability and clarity. And we know from even in our own communities that there are certain places that are shut down where next door they're not. Um, and there are areas of our business community that are going to have to coexist for this. This is not... You know, a, a pandemic is not going to go away for you know many months to come, even if we get a needle in our arm or take a pill down our throat. So we're going to have to live with this. And what people want is more of a tailored response to this based on clear evidence. And right now they're very skeptical about it. But we're going to have to do something the longer we stay at, uh, you know, with this, with this uh, virus in our society. Well, let's get to the nitty-gritty of your survey results and what it revealed. Do you want to run down some of the uh, reveals in this survey? Yeah, and some of them are not so much of a surprise. I mean, those provinces and areas that believe that medical evidence is being used the most actually are in Atlantic Canada, where there's almost no cases whatsoever. 
They were first off the mark. They have a big bubble there. In fact, they're even talking about allowing people to go to a bubble in Cuba over Christmas in the March break, potentially. Um, so they're fine, and they, they, you know, 7 and 10 believe it's medical, also in British Columbia, uh, where um, Dr. Bonnie Henry was out way out in front of this. And while they're having some bumps right now in terms of increases in cases, I mean, she's acknowledged that this is a medical evidence-based decision-making. It's the rest of the country where you do have issues, uh, particularly in Quebec, uh, Alberta, um, and um, in Ontario, where it, it sides more where people are basically saying, look, it's best guess or it's political. And, and I think that's where we've had it, it, people experience different levels of government calling out other levels of government to either make the decisions on their behalf or make the decision, which then causes some confusion down at the local level. So it's been very straightforward, primarily on the coast, but in the in-between, it's not so much. Okay, so in the areas where, you know, we're seeing that this is Canada's economic engine, we're having the most skepticism. Yeah, and I think, again, this is not just about restaurants, whether they're open or closed, or businesses, whether they can be open at certain times versus others, or even about gyms. The issue is that the public is skeptical about how these decisions are being made. And they want to see evidence. And in Ontario, they're just starting to release the evidence. We're going to get new modeling, which people can reflect upon. But there's a public confidence issue here, because we've seen whether it be in schools or whether it be in communities where blunt instruments have been used. Uh, you know, you've, you've got a lot of kids in school uh, today, but they're far less than there were at the outset of the school year because people want medical evidence. And they're going to yank their kids out of school if they don't feel that it's appropriate. So I think it may be the end of the, the economy uh, and the engine is right here, but there are a lot of other factors where, you know, people basically say, look, if I, how come I can't eat, you know, in a restaurant over here when there appears to be no evidence saying that the big spread's there, but I can go across the street Steeles Avenue, just on the outside of Toronto, and I can eat across the street. They need to have more precision in terms of what's backing up these these decisions. Uh, do you think that the the tiered approach that the the province is going to announce today is go- is going to make a a dent into some of your findings and change people's opinions on you know just with more uh, web information on the provincial site and graphs and things like that and a tiered approach? I think it's a great question. I don't know whether supplying graphs and charts and extra people at the table and doctors is going to change a whole lot of minds right immediately. What does uh, change minds is how it's applied on the ground. So if you get restaurants or those most affected who believe that it's working, and if we see the cases lowering even when it's working, then I think that's, you know, pragmatic evidence to people that it's the right way to go. The issue that we have to, again, get back to is that the people most affected by this are people who have jobs, uh, who are often in the service industry, the long-term care homes. And I think where we're, where we're headed, Kelly, is as opposed to a blunt instrument being used where we actually turn around and say, look, we do have vulnerable people in our society. We know where most of the cases are that, that, that they're getting them. We can track where they are. We need to isolate those people and to ensure that the spread doesn't move elsewhere. I think after these many months, six months, I guess it is, that we're getting more precision in that. 
And it's going to come down to how it's applied at the local community level. So you can have as many red alerts as you want, but if it's blunt instrument down in the community level and you're still seeing a rise in cases within, it's questionable. And if you use it more precision-like and you're seeing it rise again, then again, you're going to have questions, but at least you're going to be trying something more pragmatic. I have a question about your poll, John. Was it done before uh, the graphs were released uh, that showed that that a lot of the outbreaks weren't happening in gyms as as much as suspected? Yes, it was. Um, It was done just before that came out. So, you know, we in the news media and the polling business are quite aware of those things. Uh, what people have heard about more so, I would suggest, is the spinning club in Hamilton and how many yeah. people were infected by that as opposed to the graphs and charts, which goes back to my point. If if there is tangible evidence in their eyes at a local level, that's what's going to carry the day as opposed to health authorities at another level. They've got to find a way to marry the two and make sure that you know people across the country know that it is evidence that's causing these issues and not some blunt instrument that is harming opportunities across the province or the country. I guess the fear is if people are uh, don't it was, stop having faith in a government's decision making, then they will stop listening to health uh, health guidelines and just do what they want to do. Yeah, that's the nail on the head right there. And uh, again, what an interesting time, because at the outset of the pandemic, we had wall-to-wall commercials. You remember that? You know, you couldn't get a broadcast in without having seven commercials on either side of it about wash your hands, you know, look after yourself, social distancing, all that stuff. Here we are six months later with double the amount that we were seeing back then. And, you know, we're getting, you know, one announcement. We're getting, you know, a couple of uh of advertisements around it. There's not the blanket kind of consistency that we have here that we were having before. Even that plays into it. So, but John, I mean, at a, at some point in time when, you know, you're little and your parents are telling you look both ways before you cross the street, at some point they stop telling you look both ways before you cross the street because they assume that you've, you've got it because they're, you know, you're proving that you've got it. Yeah. And look, I don't disagree with that analogy whatsoever. The problem is though, that oftentimes young people take risks. Um, right. They think that they're okay. And I think that's what we're coming out with right here. But I think more to the point, people are saying, look, why should all of us be harmed when, in fact, we find the spread being in a couple of other places? Geographically, can you contain this? Can you contain it within, you know, by excluding certain parts of the economy without all the parts of the economy? I, I think, Kelly, there was a bit of a change at the provincial table they brought in two doctors, uh, Dr. Steeny Brown and Dr. Tepper, about two and a half weeks ago, who we really haven't seen or heard much about. And I think that they are causing a more pragmatic, isolated approach to this, a more rigorous approach. So they're working with the health uh, leader, um, you know, Dr. Williams. But I think mm-hmm. it's, it's going to have some more discipline. And I think that's what we're starting to see right now. I was reading, and I'm not sure where I found this. So it, it, this this uh, was just one. I haven't checked this source, so uh, but I was reading that uh, it's believed that Dr. David Williams is going to retire soon. So they're looking for someone to take over. So I wonder if you know who will take over and how that will change the messaging in the province uh, if that indeed uh, happens. I think it was set for the spring, but uh, we'll get more confirmation on that. Um, John, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Hey, Kelly, it's been a pleasure. You take care.
Have a great day. That's John Wright, Executive Vice President at Maru Blue Public Opinion. The Toronto Catholic District School Board had a meeting, and the meeting happened, I believe, last year. And the board was discussing updates to its code of conduct that would have included terms like gender expression and gender identity. Scarborough North York trustee Michael Del Grande introduced a motion likening LGBTQ diversity to a series of offensive and criminal acts. And so the Toronto Catholic District School Board investigated and the Board of Trustees concluded that Del Grande, who later pulled his motion, oh, I'll take it back, sure. He did not breach the code of conduct. Now some teachers and trustees and even the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, are calling for Toronto's Catholic School Board to publicly release the report on the homophobic, homophobic comments made by the trustee and that this is after the board discipline uh, declined to discipline him. Marcus De Domenico is a Etobicoke Catholic School trustee. He joins me on the line, and he's one of the folks that would like some transparency here. Marcus, what about this story has you up in arms? Hey, good morning, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, the, the meeting was last November 7th, 2019, when that amendment by Trustee Del Grand was put forward, uh, which was highly offensive to the community, um, and especially in light of several delegates who had come to speak about being bullied as uh, gay students in our board. And it was withdrawn because the director pointed out that some of the articles in the amendment were actually in the criminal code, for goodness sake. So, yeah, um, I've been pushing and I will be pushing tomorrow night at the private session of the board. We always have a private before the public session to release the report to the public. The complainants uh, should have had this long ago. They're entitled to know what happened, and the public uh, paid for this report. They're entitled to see it and and to read it for themselves and to wonder aloud why the board couldn't get the eighth vote to make uh, to sanction Trustee Del Grant. What's in the report? Is it is the transcript of what uh, Trustee Del Grant said in the in the report? Well, the report is quite detailed. We we hired an independent law firm to do it. Um, I can't speak to the details still because it is in private and I would be violating the code if I revealed private information. But I will tell you that it looked very clearly into what was said that night because it's all on video anyway. It's Yeah, I think I saw some of the video. It was leaked yeah. earlier on last year. Yeah, well, the video the, now the video of the comments is, was made in a public session. So this is the irony of, of, the, of the whole thing. The video right. comments were made publicly, but then the decision to hire an investigator was made in the private session. So the report comes back to private. So I need to get enough votes to take that report and to release it to the public. And what kind of support do you think you have uh, on, on your side? I think I have uh, more than enough votes to have my motion pass in private to release the port report to public, but one never knows until you go around the table and take a vote. Right. Now, the investigation report into Trustee Del Grande's uh, conduct, as you say, was considered at a private meeting of the Board of Trustees. It's permitted under the Education Act. But uh, I'm reading here in a story about this, that matters considered in a private session of the board remain in private unless the board directs otherwise. If they don't direct otherwise, the only reason I can see for secrecy is shame. And shame around education is a very destructive thing. Well, it certainly is. I mean, we're a publicly funded Catholic board. We need to be accountable to the public. This issue has to come out. 
the public was uh, the vast, vast majority of the public, students, families, uh, staff members, were highly offended by the comments, as, as, as is right. The comments were highly offensive, in my opinion, and they, they need an accounting of what's going on. They need to know why uh, this has been allowed to stand so far. So I know that's- you can't say anything about what's in the report, but uh, did Trustee Delgron's public comments, refresh my memory here, am I, am I remembering correctly there was something about bestiality? Well, what happened was it was an amendment to the motion about aligning our code of conduct with the Ontario Human Rights Code. So uh, we were debating that, and of course, most of us wanted that alignment to happen. And uh, he then added an amendment. It's quite a lengthy amendment, actually, which included uh, terms like bestiality, pedophilia, necrophilia, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he was cut off, rightly so. um, And the amendment was, you know, it was seconded, but then it was withdrawn. And um, the, the, the comments were made publicly to an audience of people, both online and present, that were there to support people, uh, marginalized communities that need our support and that we accept. Are, is there a worry that people would take their kids out of the Catholic school board if we don't uh, come forward with transparency where this is concerned because they're worried about, you know, um, people that are making decisions at the top? Well, I mean, parents always have that choice. I think parents also realize quite clearly that the vast majority of trustees uh, so far, uh, and I think more will join on board, um, do not condone those comments at all. They find them offensive. So the vast majority of trustees so far, you know, with the exception of Trustee Del Grand, who made the comments, uh, do not support that. So parents need to also be reaffirmed that we support their children, no matter how they identify, and that we care and love for them, and we will take care of them, and we will respect them, and we will not allow them to be bullied. So that's, the, that's you know, really the key element. Uh, I, I, how early do you think we'll get a, um, a result from your motion? The meeting is at 6 p.m. tomorrow night at the board in private. At 7 p.m., we go online to the public. So when we go online, we always report a very brief summary from what happened in the private session. So you'll know pretty early tomorrow evening. All right. I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for making sense of this. Hey, it's nice to talk to you. Well, that, my friends, is it for the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Kelly Cotrera Show podcast wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And join us if you can. We broadcast live from 9 till noon, Monday through Friday, on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.